0: Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I have a wife and two girls who are at home. Uh, my older daughter is sick, but apparently they're watching online, so hi, family. <laughs> okay, so obligation fulfilled. Great. Uh, as, as we are looking this morning, I want to start with a Bible verse that I think probably uh, many of us are familiar with, where Jesus in John 8.32 said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is probably something we've memorized, if not, it's a great one for us to memorize. We live in a culture... That is debating if truth even exists anymore, right? And then we're landing on different sides of the aisle of what is true. Well, here's my truth. Here's what I think. Here's what it means to me. Here's in culture. I mean, things that for probably some of us who've been around for a few decades, we are debating things that we never thought we would have to debate, like the idea that men and women are an actual thing. Right? Like, it's interesting to me some of the things we debate. Nonetheless, we are in a debate and culture. Does truth even exist? The reason this ultimately matters is because when you discover truth, there is a outflow, a consequence that truth will have in your life. It brings freedom. But you can't have freedom from truth that you don't know, or if you don't believe truth exists, we have to establish what truth is. And let me point out, if you back up one verse in this one, in John eight thirty one, Jesus said, to everybody who believed in him, Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you're my disciples indeed. Now, notice that if is contingent. Okay? He was talking to people who believed in him, right? And he said, it's great you believe in me, but there was an if for people that believed in him. Not everyone who believed was a disciple. That's a big deal, okay? If you believe, if you abide, right? If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. Notice also, abide is an active participation, right? If, if you are studying and doing what the word of God says, you are on your journey of a disciple, And when you study the Word of God, when you do what it says, then you will know the truth and truth sets you free. By the way, studying the Word of God, we're studying the words of Jesus. It's the connection of Jesus. Jesus said he was truth. So the more we are connected with Jesus, the more we know truth, and the more we are set free by the truth that we know, truth does exist. And in a culture that's not sure truth exists, This is a major problem. It's why, as we're looking at our nation, being divided, being callous, being torn apart, this is something that, for most of us, we've never seen a nation this divided. We've never seen this much tension, these many problems. This is crazy. And I think it's even worth noting that the problems are not just what's happening in a secular culture. Okay, It's one thing, as Christians, we can look and be like, man there's some heathens in the world. Like, Well, that's the expectation, right? If you don't know Jesus, I don't expect you to live like Jesus. But what's crazy is even inside the church, we're having debates over issues that are not confusing in Scripture. Let me give you a nugget. You should never be confused about something that's not confusing in Scripture, right? We have a church that is confused about basic truth and principles. And let me point out, in the midst of a culture that is being divided, There was some division that happened in Scripture. Actually, the Bible says that at the very end, that that God will separate people. And his separation, right, would be between the sheep and the goats. He gathers all the nations to him. And then he would separate separate them as a shepherd would separate the sheep and the goats. And if you remember the parable of Matthew 25, where Jesus said that in that time, right, he would say, come, ye blessed of my father. Enter into all that I prepared for you because I was hungry. You fed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was sick. You covered me. I was in prison. You visited me. And they say, uh, when, when did we do that? Right? And what he says in, what you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. What you did. And by the way, the people who were the goats who didn't make it into the blessings prepared by his father before him, he said, what you did not do to the least of these, my brothers, you did not do to me. It's interesting. In God's kingdom, there was division, but the division happened based on what people did or did not do on an individual level. That's super interesting. Because for so long inside of the church realm, we have learned this idea, right? It's by faith, right? Or by grace, through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that's that's where salvation comes. Totally true, right? We're not talking about salvation. You don't do anything to earn salvation. I'm so glad because we would never earn it, right? So glad. However, if you read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, it's not of works, so no one can boast. Go to verse 10. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We, we, we were not saved because of our good works, but we were saved so God could use us to do good things. And it's interesting that in the end... The way people were divided was based on what they did or did not do. Now, that's really interesting. Because if you back up historically, actually, you can go back to 1963, on the 100th anniversary, Right, looking back when Abraham Lincoln did the Emancipation Proclamation, MLK is on the steps of Lincoln Memorial, when he's looking back over 100 years, and recognizing there still has not been a total fulfillment of some of the promises of America, if something was going on for black Americans and some of the civil rights issue. But in the midst of this, he gives a speech. And the most famous part of his speech is when he gets into, I have a dream. And one of the things that he was dreaming about, he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I will point out, he did not come up with that idea. That's actually what the Bible teaches, how God looks at us. God does not look at us based on shape, size, or color. right? God looks at us, and he evaluates us. The Bible, Jesus said in in, in Matthew 7, Right? That you judge a tree by the fruits. That God looks at us and says, how are you doing with what I've called you to do? Right? How are you doing with the gifts, talents, and abilities I've given you? God looks at us on an individual level. Now, the reason, again, that matters is we live in a nation that is promoting a lot of ideas that are not very biblical, and as Christians, if we're going to know the truth and be set free by truth, then we have to make sure that in the midst of knowing truth, we also identify what's not true. And One of the things that is happening right now is there is an idea being promoted in culture That people should be put in categories, not by the content of their character, but by the color of their skin. I would point out that is a very evil and unbiblical notion. That you're gonna tell someone that you are good because of the color of your skin or you are bad because of the color of your skin. That that, that is totally ungodly and unbiblical. And by the way, the argument under critical race theory, right, says, well, but and and unless you think I'm being far-fetched, okay, I can show you hundreds literally hundreds of articles where this has become issues in school districts. And even in schools inside the Dallas 4th Metroplex, where children, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, kids are being told if they're white, they're bad because of ancestral white things that happened. By the way, not necessarily by their ancestors, but that's because they're white. And if you have darker skin, then you've been fundamentally oppressed and you're under the thumb of the system and you might not ever be able to get out. Like This whole thing, this is crazy. Also keep in mind, That if you go back in the Bible, one of the things that God told the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, God said, Hey, we're going to do things a little bit different. Okay? In the history of the world, every time there was a king or a Pharaoh, there was a leader. If the king, the Pharaoh, the leader, had somebody that opposed them and they didn't like, not only would they sometimes eliminate the person that was opposing them, they would sometimes wipe out the entire family, right? The whole lineage would be gone. God, through Moses, tells the Israelites, In our economy, we're doing it different. The son is not guilty for the sins of the father, okay? So, so even if the argument was that, right, because of slavery, white people are bad, okay, like, I, again, I get the argument because I study American history a lot. I can go through a lot of this history, and I'm not trying to get political. I'm trying to point out that a lot of Christians are buying into an idea that's incredibly unbiblical, that we are going to judge people on the color of their skin and not on the content of their character, right? I, I I would be so grateful to acknowledge that I am so glad God doesn't look and judge by the color of skin, right? Now, I'm a little nervous that he looks at the content of my character because this dude is flawed, right? So glad Jesus came that, right, because the blood of Jesus, check. But the reality is, in a culture that's saying it's based on the color of your skin, as a Christian, color should be one of the least concerns, right? As a white guy, I can openly acknowledge my Jesus is a brown Middle Eastern man. Right, like this ain't a white supremacy thing. This is the acknowledgement of in God's economy, it is different. Now, also worth noting that critical race theory is rooted in critical theory. This is the Marxist ideology. And because we don't know very much history in modern culture, let me remind you, Marxism was a leading idea in the world in the 20th century. And when you look at the leaders under Marxist ideology and philosophy, right, so from Marxism, a lot of socialist and communist leaders embraced Marxist ideology, more than 100 million people. We're killed under Marxist leaders. Okay, When you embrace evil and when you promote and teach evil, right? this is part of what happens in culture. And let me point out, like, again, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is not necessarily to be political. It's to, as Christians, make sure we're thinking biblical on some very culturally relevant issues as a Christian. One of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote, he said that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. You know, in God's economy, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. doesn't matter your color or skin. doesn't matter your ethnicity. doesn't matter your background. And you think about all the things that could have divided people, right? And back then, being a Jew or Greek, right? Being a Gentile or a Jew, that was a really big deal. And Paul's like, yeah, that ain't, that's not important, right? Being a male or female, not that important. Slave or free, not that important. We we're like, no, the, all those things are really important. He's like, nope, not in God's economy, God's economy, what matters is if you know Jesus or don't, and that's all that matters. God looks at us only two ways. Do you know my son or do you not? That's interesting because what we are doing in culture is we are going a very different direction. And I would point out part of the reason that we're embracing things that are, are maybe not biblical is because we also have a faulty understanding of history. And it's very easy for us as Americans, and I, I think just in general as people, to think that we really know a lot more than we do uh, I, I think a lot of times it's just you know some pride in us, but just for example, right? So like, as a guy, I can't speak to the girls necessarily, but as a guy, right? There, there's some basic things that we feel like as guys we should be able to do, right? Whether like I've I've been an avid hunter and shooter my whole life, and so then when I went shooting with Pastor Chris and I missed birds, I was like, I'm a loser, I missed a bird, right? That's like, so embarrassing. Or like, growing up, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I learned to change the oil in my car. I have no idea. What to do anymore. Like, it would be so embarrassing. There's a lot of times we think we know stuff and we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. If my car breaks down on the side of the road, I for sure am calling somebody, right? Like, I am not that handy anymore, not to mention justification. It's because they have chips. Like, if they didn't have these electronic chips, we probably could fix it all, right? That's probably the problem. The reality is, for most people, we feel like we know more about things than we actually do. And if you start breaking this down, I would point out one of our thoughts with history and what's being even taught now in history. Is, is so misleading and misguiding. In fact, one of the, the big narratives being pushed now from the 1619 Project, uh, which when, when back up in, in uh, 2019, when Nicole Hannah-Jones came out with this idea, the 1619 Project, and the idea was that America was not birthed in 1776 when we actually separated from Great Britain and became our own nation. America was birthed in 1619 when the first shipload of slaves arrived in America. Now, lots of flaws with that thought because America, or actually, excuse me, let me back up. Britain or the UK, English and British colonies were not the first colonies in America. They were Spanish and French colonies long before there were English colonies in America. And if you back up all the way to the 1500s, the Spanish colonies were already importing slaves from Africa in what is the United States of America. They had had a colony in the 1520s in South Carolina, and in 1525 they had imported their first load of slaves from Africa into South Carolina. Now again, I'm only pointing this out because we are hearing a lot of things that are not even historically true, and because we don't know very much history, we were never taught this kind of stuff, we don't actually know what's true. But one of the crazy things is in the very first article she wrote, for the 1619 Project, she said, conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of the primary primary reasons the colonists decided to declare independence from Great Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Do you know the reason we separated from Great Britain was to protect slavery? Now, if you've never read the Declaration of Independence, that's where we actually explain why we separated from Great Britain. If you have read the Declaration of Independence, you know what's not in there? That we wanted to protect slavery, and that's why we're separating where in the world do we come up with these ideas? This is one of the problems that if you look at modern culture, we don't know nearly as much history as we think we do. And because now the modern narrative is being shaped by things not rooted in historical truth, a lot of people are buying into lies, not knowing their lies and not recognizing, right? If if you believe a lie, the Bible says that you can be damned for believing a lie. Well, what that means is cursed, Right? You can have destruction come on you, on your family, your community, or your nation for believing things that are contradictory to the Word of God, the principles of the Word of God. With all that being said, if you ever a chance to go to Washington, D.C., highly recommend it. Some really cool things there. If you ever want to see the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, they are housed in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Well, last year, because of COVID, everything was shut down in D.C. And they decided that, you know what, you can still see everything online. You can go to the nationalarchives.gov. You can see these documents online. But last year, when you went to their website to look up the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, when you went to look those up, they had a harmful language warning put on those documents saying that you need to be careful before you read these because these are racist and they're harmful and they could be detrimental if you read these the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Again, if you've never read those, go and read them and see if you can find the harmful language they're warning you about. This makes no sense at all, but it is a concerted effort that there is a move to really trash early America, to trash the Founding Fathers, and part of it goes back to this notion of even Marxism. Part of what we're teaching and doing today is, in Marxism, there are only two groups of people. There's the oppressed and the oppressors, And the idea in Marxism is that you need to overthrow the status quo. And Karl Marx actually said, in order to get enough people to rise up to overthrow the current system, he says, you might have to start teaching people how they've been oppressed because they might not realize they are oppressed, but you have to convince them they are oppressed or you can't overthrow the current system. This is literally what's happening now is kids are being taught in education that America is an incredibly intolerant, oppressive, evil place. Let me back you up. When, when the founding fathers do the Declaration of Independence, it's because we were living under the king. At the time, it was King George III. He was a leader in England. And the Declaration of Independence, when it comes out, it was our announcement to the entire world and to the king that there were certain things we weren't going to put up with and we were separating. The short of it is, if you want to understand the declaration, here's the easy thought of the declaration. The Declaration of Independence is the greatest breakup letter that was ever written, okay? It, it, it's where literally, we're telling the king, like, okay, like, we've been trying this for a long time, but like, you leave your underwear and socks all over the place, like, it's all over the house. You never clean up. You never, And so we're, we're literally like, we, okay, we can't handle it anymore. But what's great about the declaration is we say, it's not us, it's all you. And then we list 27 reasons why he's the problem and why we're breaking up. Like We're going a different direction. This relationship isn't sentimental anymore. In the midst of this, when Jefferson writes the declaration, Jefferson was 33 years old, and as he drafts this, there's an incredibly famous phrase that probably many of us memorized when we were in school growing up. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. Jefferson starts off, acknowledging, he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, they acknowledged there were some things that were true. One of the challenges that we are going to have to deal with going forward in a nation is when people can't agree on basic truth, it's really hard to be compatible and function as a nation, right? I'm like, genuinely, if we can't even agree that men and women are a thing, some people think men and women exist, some people believe in biology or extra Y chromosomes, and some people are like, no, it's all a construct, that's really hard to figure out how to navigate life if you can't agree on some basic truths. And what the Founding fathers said, here's some basic truths that we can agree on. As divided as they were, different ideas, different thoughts, I said, here's what we need to be true. That we are created equal. That, that we all have been given rights by God and that government exists primarily to protect our God-given rights. That's what we know. It's worth noting that they said these truths were self-evident. Those are the truths, but they said these truths are self-evident. That means obvious. If you stop and think about this, I would actually challenge the idea that these are obvious truths. Because if you look in the world, even today, these aren't obvious truths. The idea that we're all created equal, do you know in India they still have a class system? Because there's still a lot of people who believe in reincarnation, and so there's literally different classes of people. Or even, you can go to Saudi Arabia, who just two years ago, maybe it's two and a half, maybe three years ago now, but they just recently passed a law for the first time allowing women to drive in their nation. Okay? Equality. They're not really caught up yet, but if you look at any major Muslim nation, they don't believe that men and women are equal. That's not part of their belief. Literally, around the world, this notion of equality is not the real thing. Or the idea that we have God-given rights? Ask Putin if he believes in those God-given rights and what they look like. Right? As as the leaders of North Korea and China, you look at some of these major nations, these are not self-evident truths to most people in the world. The idea that government exists primarily for the security of your rights? I am not convinced that the majority of politicians in America even believe that anymore. Right? That your job is to protect my God-given rights. That's not self-evident to most people. But why the Founding Fathers could say it was self-evident, and where it is self-evident even for us today, is these are obvious truths to people who know the Word of God. Because if you know the Word of God, you realize it's actually Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that says God made us in his image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Where we find equality is that we were all made with equal value, made in the image of the creator, and that we have been given a soul, so we're different than everything else in creation. This is where equality comes from, and it's worth noting, if you read Genesis, it does not tell us what shape, size, or color Adam and Eve were. That's kind of cool. We have no idea what they look like, and for the sake of value, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what shape, size, or color you are. When we live in a world that says it matters what your shape, size, and color is, right? You need to look like this. You need to act like this. You... No, no, no. In God's economy, equality does not come from the shape, size, or value that we, or shape, excuse me, shape, size, or color that we have. Our value comes because we're made in God's image. All that being said, when we look at this today, one of the leading arguments, like why, why would the National Archives put a harmful language warning and say the Declaration was racist? Why is that a thing happening? Because the argument is that when the Founding Father said that all men were created equal, well the majority of them were slaveholders, so they only meant that white people were equal. That's why it's racist. Now, This is what is being ascribed to that notion. I would point out, if you want to know the truth, and this is important in church, right? anytime that somebody's up here, pastor's like, hey guys, we know the word of God says this. You ought to be like, all right, cool. I love pastor. I trust him. I'm looking up the Bible verse right? If someone says something says something, you should always go back and look it up to confirm what it says. Well, this notion of the Declaration of Independence, I would encourage you. Go back and read the original draft from Thomas Jefferson of the Declaration of Independence. You can find it online. And Actually, I brought with me, this is an early original copy of Jefferson's actual draft of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson died in 1826. They began collecting his writings. In 1828, they decided they were going to come out with a multiple volume set of his writings. And in those writings, they found the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. And as they began going through putting all his writings together, what they determined is it would be really cool for people that buy this this multiple volume set to actually have a copy of the original draft. So what they did is they went to the original, they laid it out, what we would know as an ink lift, that they put another document on it, they put a chemical on, and when they lifted the document off, it actually took ink off of the original onto that copy, and then from that copy, they made several hundred copies. This is one of the original copies that was made from that ink lift. This was done in 1829, so very significant old document. And it's super fun on the side. Some of you that are close can see it, and actually on the screen, you can see a little bit. There's over on the side, and, and again, online, you can get online and read this, but on the line or on the side, whenever they have an edit along the way, they put over on the side the name of the person who made that edit. There was a committee of five. So it was Jefferson, it was Benjamin Franklin, it was John Adams, it was Livingston, and it was Sherman. They were the committee of five. So they literally, whenever someone makes an edit, they put over on the side who made the edit. So this is kind of like a Google work doc, right? That you know exactly who's doing what to. This is what happened in the declaration. What's worth noting is in this original draft of the declaration, as Thomas Jefferson is writing, all of the reasons that we want to separate from the king Right, we're, we're going to write them all down because we wanted the whole world to know why we were separating. As you go through and read this, when it gets to the listing of grievances, all the reasons we're separating because he's quartering troops, because right we don't have representation, because you go down the list, all these things, you get to the longest grievance in the entire draft of the declaration. That grievance is on the third page. And on the third page, it's an entire paragraph of this grievance. And the grievance starts off, for those of you who are close, you might be able to read some of it. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself. I'm going to put the text up, and I'm going to read this together. Now, this is Jefferson is writing all of the reasons we want to separate from the king. The biggest reason in the declaration, this is what he says. He said he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the upper of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. In this document, the word men is fully capitalized. And this is a big deal because the only other thing fully capitalized in the entire document is the title, United States of America. Everything else is just standard. He gets to the idea of the slave trade and he says, these men are being bought and sold. Men, he, why are you fully capitalizing that? Because he's acknowledging the humanity of these Africans who are being taken in the slave trade. But it doesn't stop there. Because as you keep reading in this, it says that he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. Every legislative attempt? yes. As we're listening, why are we trying to separate from the king? One of the things that many of the colonies had done, they began passing laws to actually end slavery and end the slave trade. And the king, because they were all British colonies, English colonies, the king began vetoing every one of those laws. In 1774, the king had vetoed four colonies' anti-slavery laws. And actually, if you look back at the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin was one of the founding fathers, that in 1774, when the king vetoed those laws, Franklin said... This is just one more reason we should separate from the king because he won't even let us end slavery in our own state. Let me back up. In 1773, Benjamin Franklin writes a letter to a local pastor, and this is what Benjamin Franklin tells him in this letter in 1773. A disposition to abolish slavery prevails in North America that many of Pennsylvanians have set their slaves at liberty and that even the Virginia Assembly have petitioned the king for permission to make a law for preventing the importation of more in that colony. Pennsylvania had actually banned slavery. Virginia said, we don't want the slave trade coming into Virginia anymore. What he explained in the letter was, this request, however, will probably not be granted, as their former laws of that kind have always been repealed. Former laws of that kind. They had been passing laws to try to stop some of what was happening, because many of the founding fathers already knew that this was... And evil. This was a sin. This wasn't good. Now, not every founding father got there. However, the vast majority of the founding fathers finally did land in that position. But today, most people don't know the founding fathers and who they are and what they did. Or if you even look, when we separated from the king, every single northern colony began passing anti-slavery law. So when you look back at the early colonies, so much so that by 1804, every single northern colony had passed a law for the abolition of slavery by 1804. Every single one. Which makes it the first major region in the world to actually effectively abolish slavery. England did not end slavery until 1833. The northern colonies, the New England states in America, all those northern colonies, there was more population. It was bigger than England was. And we abolished it 30 years before England did. This is incredible. But this is not the part of history we hear, which is why when there's a modern narrative today saying, right, well, the founding fathers, the reason they fought the, the War of Independence was to protect slavery. That's not even close to accurate. Now, it's worth noting, let's go back to the declaration, his original draft. Why did this incredibly long grievance, this big grievance, why did it not make it into the final draft of the declaration? John Hancock, during the convention, he told all the delegates that we will only include in the final draft what is unanimous. Because if we have disagreements between the colonies, the king might be able to come in and pull us apart by our own local separate political interests. So what we do has to be unanimous. Jefferson, in his own writings, talked about when when they were going through the declaration that he had drafted. And they're going line by line, word by word. He says when they got to the grievance that was against slavery and against the slave trade, he says that there were two colonies who were opposed to that, that grievance, he said, because they acknowledged that up to that point, they had not tried to end slavery or end the slave trade, and therefore, they didn't think that they needed to include this grievance in the Declaration. Those two colonies were Georgia and South Carolina. It's worth noting, 11 of the colonies voted in favor of it. The vast majority of the Founding Fathers came out on record against the slave trade and against slavery. But see, today, we know so little history that even if, even if we look back at America, if you look at the American Revolution, right? we often think the American Revolution, like the shot heard around the world, that's when it began. I would point out John Adams in 1816, he was writing with a, a more or less a professor who was going to write a history book. And he tells this professor that if you look back historically, he says, as you tell the story of the revolution, you need to point out, that the significant moments of the revolution, it wasn't the shot around the world, it, it wasn't the battle of Bunker Hill, it wasn't our victory at Saratoga, it wasn't even our victory at Yorktown, which completed the victory of the revolution. He says the most significant moment that actually led to the revolution was when the first blood was shed at King Street. Now, if you remember King Street, that's the Boston Massacre. If you remember the Boston Massacre, who was the first person who died in the Boston Massacre? It was a black patriot named Crispus Attucks. John Adams says that's when the revolution began. The revolution began with the death of a black patriot. Okay? That's that's really interesting. If you jump to the last major battle of the Revolution, now, that was 1770. The last major battle, actually, of the Revolution was 1781. And during this battle, there was a a famous French major general who was a very pro-American guy, the Marquis de Lafayette. And Lafayette and Washington became very good friends throughout the course of the war and for many years after. And during the war, Washington told Lafayette, what we need the most help with is we need to know where the British officers are going. We need to track their movements. And so he assigned Lafayette to specifically track the movements of Lord Cornwallis and other major officers. So what Lafayette did is Lafayette created a spy ring. And in this spy ring, there were primarily African Americans, black patriots who composed a spy ring. And strategically, Armistead understood that one of the things that we could do with these black patriots who want to fight for the cause of liberty, he said, we can have them go into a British camp pretending to be an escaped slave, and when they get in the camp, they can gather intelligence, come back and report it. Well, the most famous spy he had working for him was a guy named James Armistead. Now, James Armistead is the guy who actually is credited with the intelligence that led to the end of the revolution, but here's how the story unfolds. If you remember the famous American general, Benedict Arnold, who became the famous traitor, Benedict Arnold. When he became a traitor, he ends up going to the British and becomes a British general. Well, as a British general, in uh, in 1781, he led the attack on Richmond, Virginia. Well, the British conquered Richmond, and James Armistead at the time, he was a slave. He was a slave. Uh, Mr. Armistead was the the guy, his slave owner, but he was a slave in Virginia. And when Richmond fell, he went to a slave owner and said, hey, we can't let the British win. I want to go sign up. And, And he told his master, I want to sign up. I want to go fight. And his master said, that's fine. If you want to fight, you can go. Virginia at the time had a law that said, if you fight for a year, you could have your freedom. His master knew this, so that's fine. Go fight. So James goes to sign up. When he goes to sign up, Lafayette kind of sees him coming, right? And Lafayette's like, hey, actually, we, I, I want you to be with me. Lafayette recruits him to become a spy in the spy ring, and Lafayette says, look, right now the British have Richmond. Why don't you pretend to be an escaped slave, go to the British camp in Richmond? and gather intelligence, come back and report to me. So that's what he does. He goes and starts working in this British camp in Richmond. But while he's working in the British camp in Richmond, he actually is noted by Benedict Arnold. And Arnold sees him working in the camp, and Arnold says, Hey, he's, he's such a good guy. He worked so hard serving these men. And a guy who, who serves that well shouldn't serve the common soldier. He should serve the officers. So Benedict Arnold invited James Armistead to come serve in the officers' tents where James now begins hearing all of the officers' plans of what they're doing and where they're going. Well, in the midst of this, Benedict Arnold got called by Lord Cornwallis, the commander of all the British forces. Cornwallis called him and said, hey, I want you to come. You're now going to come work with me, and you're going to be in my camp. So Arnold relocates, but when he relocates, he decided to make James his personal assistant, And he took James with him to the camp of Lord Cornwallis. And now, by the way, this is what Lafayette dreamed of the whole time, right? Lafayette, there's a couple really cool letters from Lafayette to Washington during the revolution. And one of them, Lafayette says that, hey, there's this new spy working for me. And he is getting me better intelligence than any spy, like all the other spies combined, like nothing compares to this guy. This guy's amazing. What was James? So James gets relocated with Arnold to the camp of Cornwallis. Well, he is then brought in with Benedict Arnold to Cornwallis's tent where he hears every single plan of the British. And in the midst of hearing every plan of the British, he gets word back to Lafayette, he says, hey, Cornwallis is moving with several thousand of his men and they're going to Yorktown. There's a really cool letter. The second letter from Lafayette to Washington and this kind of discussion of James Armistead, he says, remember that spy I told you who was like the best spy I had? He's in Cornwallis' camp, and he just got me word that Cornwallis is moving with several thousand men to Yorktown, and Lafayette tells Washington. This might be the very moment we've been waiting and praying for, that if we could surround Yorktown, if we could capture Cornwallis, we might could end the revolution. Well, that's exactly what happens. Washington is able to lead his men. They surround Yorktown. They capture Cornwallis. It ends the American Revolution, What's worth noting is that Lafayette, Washington, multiple people acknowledged. like The reason they were able to win this battle is because they knew where Cornwallis was going in the first place, they knew how many men he was taken, so they knew what they had to do to win, and the reason they didn't know any of that was because of this black spy, James Armistead. The reason, again, I would point out all this matters. If you just knew basic history better than what we teach today, the revolution began with the death of a black patriot, and the revolution was won because of the intelligence work of a black patriot. So this notion today that, you know, America is all this one look and this one shape or whatever else, like guys, there's so much more to the story than most Americans know, and most of our narrative and culture today is being shaped by historical inaccuracies without telling the whole story. And this is where for many of you growing up, you might remember Paul Harvey. Right? Where Paul Harvard would say, and now the rest of the story. There's a whole lot rest of the story that's being left out that would change the narrative what's compared to today. And I'm not saying any of this to defend America as in like not saying America hasn't done sinful, wrong, evil things. My starting place looking at people and looking at America as a whole, any nation, my starting place is that everybody is jacked up and needs Jesus, right? That's where we start, right? Because there is none righteous, no, not one. No. So, of course, if you look in American history, there will be many sinful, wicked, evil, fleshly moments like there will in every single nation. There's never been a perfect nation in the history of the world. And there's one reason there's never been a perfect nation, because every nation's always had people, right? Like That's what people do. And it's it's also, it's worth noting, right? Like This is why it's it's silly to me sometimes when people will come and be like, can you believe so-and-so just did this? I'm always like, yeah. Like, why are we surprised that people have a fleshly or a sinful moment in their life? Like that, there's a reason Jesus came, and it allows us. It should allow us to have grace and perspective at times for people in their life. All that to be said, this is not a defense of America that America never did anything wrong, but it is an acknowledgement that a lot of the modern narrative is not based on historic truth or reality. And as Christians, we have to make sure we're not buying into a cultural narrative that is contrary to the reality of Scripture. That the reality of Scripture is that's something different than what we are teaching people today. And, and let me just finish. So one of the major abolitionists in earlier America, back in the 1800s, Frederick Douglass, right? He's, he was a slave, found freedom, and then became a major abolitionist, helping even in the Civil War. And ultimately, as we see the end of slavery, he becomes outspoken, a fan of America. But one of the things that is, is significant about Frederick Douglass, today some people use Frederick Douglass, and they say, well, you know, Frederick Douglass at one point said these things. Frederick Douglass wrote three autobiographies about himself. Seems like that's a lot to write about yourself, but the reality is no one knows how long they're going to live. So after he'd escaped slavery and found freedom, and, and he joined an abolition movement, he wrote his first autobi- autobiography in 1849. Okay, That's when the first one came out. And at this point, he had found freedom, but he recognized like America's got some major flaws in it, because look at the system. Look at what's happening around us. Look at, look at what's being allowed to happen in some of these states and colonies and what's, how slaves are being treated. So his first autobiography recognizes that. But in 1852, he gives a speech called, What is the Fourth of July to a Black Man? And in this speech, he says that, look, the promises of the Declaration have not been fulfilled. Right? There, there was promises of, of freedom, right? of, of, of liberty, things that, that people would be able to pursue that we have not seen fully realized and developed. He said, however, there is a misunderstanding in As I point this out, this is where sometimes people quote the beginning of his speech, and they stop reading before they continue on. He says, "'America has not fulfilled the promises.'" He says, "'However,' in the midst of this, he goes on to explain some thoughts about the Constitution. He says, "'The Constitution of our country is our warrant for the abolition of slavery in every state for the Union.'" Now, the reason this became a significant deal is because early on, even his first autobiography, he talks about how the Constitution is kind of a racist document because it allows slavery. And somebody, one of the other abolitionist leaders came to him and said, hey, you're saying like the Constitution is pro-slavery. Have you ever read the Constitution? And he was like, no, I haven't. And they're like, maybe you should, maybe you should read it. So he actually reads the Constitution. And when he read it, he was like, interesting, because he doesn't defend slavery in here. Okay. But he started actually studying more. He read James Madison's notes in the convention, where he actually saw what they debated and how it came to be. And he read commentaries. He became a constitutional scholar. And in the midst of this, one of the things he acknowledged, and this is the same speech from 1852, one of the things he said in the speech was, it was in its letter and spirit, an anti-slavery instrument demanding the abolition of slavery. And there were people at the time, there, there were some, some pro-slavery Democrats in the South who were saying, but the Founding Fathers, they're the ones who wanted slavery. And he's like, uh, excuse me for a second. He says, those who charge this baseness on the framers of the Constitution of the United States, it is a slander upon their memory. He said, no, no, guys, I've done the research. That's not what they argued. It's not what they stood for. He continued, in that instrument, I hold there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction of the hateful thing, but interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Now, take the Constitution according to its plain reading, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. The reason I point this out is there is a movement today to talk about how evil and sinful America is. Now, America 100% had some evil, sinful moments, right? And if you study history, it's super easy to find those. The problem today is we're actually now lying about where some of those evil, sinful moments are, making it something that is not necessarily historically to be true. It's not that our nation doesn't have sinful, evil moments. That's that, easy to track, and actually, I probably can tell you way more of those than anybody thinks they even know, because we study this all the time. I can show you the ups and downs, but with that being said, when we look at this issue today that's being debated, this, this narrative today. America actually started legal opposition to slavery before any other nation in the world. America paid a higher price ending slavery than any other nation in the world, and America does more today to oppose slavery than virtually any other nation. Oppose human trafficking, opposing sex slavery. America has literally the best anti-slavery record of any nation in the history of the world. It's not that we didn't participate in some evil at times. We did. But we corrected that evil before virtually anywhere else in the world, and we did more to stop that. Now, the reason, again, I bring this up, wh- wh- why does this matter? I'm not trying to just be political and give this history lesson that's hopefully relevant to some of what we're dealing with in the culture. The reason I bring this up as Christians, right? One of the things the Apostle Paul told people is in Colossians 2.8, he says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. When we have high-sounding nonsense that's telling us we should judge people not by the content of their character, but based on the color of their skin, guys, it might be high-sounding, but it is nonsense. That is not what the Word of God teaches. In fact, one of the things the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is excellent, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy. But he goes to this list, but he says, think on these things, but he said, whatever is true. Right now, so many people, so many Christians' minds are consumed with things that are not true because we actually haven't taken the time to go back and research what is truth, right? When we are seeing a nation being torn apart and divided by things that are not even historically accurate and true, this is why I want to encourage us as Christians, right? The message of the gospel unquestionably can be offensive to people. As we're saying that you are broken and messed up and you need help, you need to save, you like, that can be offensive to people for sure. But in the midst of this, there is hope in the gospel, Right There is a hope that we are all been called to be what God has created and designed our purpose and our destiny. Like There's a lot of things in this. This is not the message that kids are learning today. This is not what's being promoted. This is not what is happening politically on spectrums and circles. This is where I would encourage us. We have to know the truth. Where Jesus said, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. We have to know the truth. We have a website called wallbuilders.com. You can go and you can find more information. And by the way, I encourage you, everything I told you today you should not believe a single thing I said until you've looked it up for yourself, right? Amen. We are in a, a mess as a nation because we've trusted way too many people for way too long, right? It's not that we don't love them, right? It's not that they weren't well-intentioned people, but I'm just explaining that as Christians, we have to be people that are pursuers of truth because as, as we look at culture, right? One of, one of the things happening in culture, we could, we hear talks today like, well, we're in the end times. I think we probably are in the end times, although... It is worth noting, Jesus said, "Right, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Right? When, when the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, when's all this going to happen? And he's like, no man knows the day or the hour. And in fact, the Father hasn't even revealed it to me yet. So when people are trying to get into the end times, what we know for certain is we are closer than anybody who's ever lived before us. That's like the only thing we know for certain. Okay? We, we don't know when it's coming. Jesus himself said the Father had not yet revealed it to him. If Jesus didn't know, I guarantee you, no pastor knows. Right? And if you did a series on when he's coming, I apologize. Like, I just messed that up for you, right? But nobody knows when he's coming. However, one of the things that Revelation says is in Revelation, it does clarify there is a heaven and a hell, right? It, it talks about in Revelation 21, that there is a fire that burns, right? A lake that burns with fire and brimstone. In fact, in Revelation 21, 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderer, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We know. Right, There is a second death. We know there is spiritual. There is, there is eternal. There's something beyond this life. And the Bible actually says, here's some of the people you're going to find in that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Of the people you find in that lake, it is crazy to me that the first group listed are the cowardly. That's crazy. But the reality is, as Christians, this is where Jesus said, Right? If you would not confess me before those around you, I ain't confessing you before my Father in heaven. There is a call as a Christian that we have to walk in courage and boldness. And I'm bringing this up now because as we talk about, we have to know the truth and the truth sets us free. Obviously, we speak the truth in love, but sometimes you have to love people enough to tell them that they're doing the wrong thing. Right? That The Bible tells us the Father disciplines the son he loves. Okay? This is a reality. We have to love people enough to tell the truth to them you have to have the courage enough to do it as well. Because in the middle of a cancel culture, where people are worried about their jobs, they're worried about their friends, they're worried about social media, you have to have the courage to stand up and say what is the right thing to be said. And I'm pointing this out because this isn't just a challenge to be courageous. This is a challenge to not go to hell. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. Because the cowardly have their place in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Now, Again, I'm not trying to get into the salvation thought with this right now. I'm just telling you, it's super crazy to me the cowardly are there. So what that means to me is I don't want to be cowardly, right? If that's who's going, then I'm not doing what they're doing that got them there. We as Christians have to find backbone like never before, right? For decades, we've taught about Jesus being the lamb. He's also a lion. And what we need in our culture is a little bit more lion Jesus. Not like lying Jesus, but... Lion, Jesus. We need some more lion in our life, right? We have to find courage. We have to have backbone. We have to stand up, and in love, we have to speak the truth because we have a culture that is literally going to hell. They're literally embracing so much error, so much deceit, so many lies, and if we as Christians will not stand up and be salt and light, nobody will. We have to have courage and have backbone and stand up and speak the truth in love. Amen. Let me pray for us, God. We thank you so much that you have revealed truth to us in your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are true, that truth is found in you. And God, we thank you that we even can love like you've loved us. And we love because you first loved us. God, we ask that you would help us to be better at loving people and speaking truth to people in love. But God, that you would give us the courage that when, when there are moments that we know we should say something, we know we should encourage somebody, we, we know we should help somebody. Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and challenge us, that we would have the courage to do what needs to be done in the moment it needs to be done that we could speak the truth and love to a culture that's lost and in need. In Jesus' name, amen.